This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations. And if you're a first-time listener, you'll want to know that we cover topics of interest in the structured settlement industry and the legal community, issues important to trial attorneys, defense attorneys, and their clients. And you can find the Ringler Radio shows on our website at ringlerassociates.com or on the legaltalknetwork.com. Well, we're glad you could join us today. We're uh, here at the Ringler Annual Meeting in beautiful, sunny Newport Beach, California. And uh, as someone who comes from the cold northeast, this is a great, great little getaway for me. And Tony, I know you're up in Seattle, uh, which is a little more rainy than Newport, but I'm sure you appreciate it as well. Uh, It's always good to get down to Southern California this time of year, Larry. Well, Tony is actually my colleague and co-host, Tony Robinson from Ringler's Seattle office. And uh, Tony, this is not your first time here on Ringler Radio, and uh, welcome back. Thanks, Larry. Well, Tony, we have a special guest uh, up there in Seattle, and uh, why don't you introduce her? Well, joining us today is uh, Cheryl Willard, and uh, she's a lawyer with the law firm of Williams Kastner in Seattle, uh, and she specializes in employment law. She's past president of the uh, Defense Research Institute and also uh, president of the National Foundation for Judicial Excellence. So, uh, Cheryl, it's a Great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. And I think, Cheryl, uh, you mentioned it was raining. Yes, it is, but we uh, like the liquid sunshine here in Seattle. Yeah, I know. I, I mentioned earlier that Tony uh, Tony tells me all the time that even if it's sunny, people in Seattle say it's raining to keep all the riffraff up. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cheryl, clearly there are a lot of areas to discuss when it comes to uh, employment law. But what, what we want to focus on today is really an area of litigation that's changing because employment is changing. And I guess gone are the days when most people work for a company for 30 to 40 years with uh, full benefits and full pensions and retirement. More likely today, you're going to find people employed part-time or leased employees and many others that are independent contractors. So how has that changed in the way people have actually worked over these uh, period of years? How has that affected employees and employers' rights? Uh, and how has the... Uh, you know, the manner in which employment disputes are litigated changed because of that? Well, that's, that's a big question, but let me see if I can provide some uh, information to you and shed some light on it. You are right that employees don't work for an employer for as long as they used to. In fact, the average number of years of people who are starting out in the workforce today is three years with any one employer before they've moved on. Mm. So it's uh, a challenge for employers as well as a, a challenge for employees. Uh, when you when you look at the way people are working now, many of them are working part time, and of course, what we see and we have seen, for instance, litigation involving some large uh, large industries like Walmart, where when they're not working full time, there's a question about whether or not they're going to receive benefits, mm-hmm. and that has led to a lot of class action litigation against a number of employers who have purposely attempted to keep their costs down 
by uh, working with individuals who are either leased employees or part-time employees not working a minimum number of hours, which is required by a contract between the insurance company that provides health care benefits, for instance, and the employer. So we've seen a lot of litigation arising from the part-time arena. But we also have seen a change in the way people have been uh, dealt with at least until a couple of years ago in the form of being temporary or leased employees. I don't know if you are familiar with the uh, case involving Microsoft. It's called Vizcaino. There actually were a couple of them. And uh, in that particular situation, Microsoft had these employees who worked for them pretty much uh, just like any regular employee would work for them. But they did not provide them with some of the benefits that were enjoyed by the employees of Microsoft. Primarily, we're talking about benefits having to do with stock options and things that might uh, contribute to the ultimate wealth of an employee uh, down the line. Ultimately, a class action was filed in that particular case, and what the court did in that case was to say, we're going to look at a couple of factors here to determine whether these people really are contractors or leased employees or temporary employees, or whether they're just regular common law employees who are entitled to all of the benefits that every other employee who works on a full-time basis at Microsoft should, should get. Mm-hmm. Well, Cheryl, in a situation like that, uh, there's some sort of employment agreement or a contract uh, between the employer and the, and the employee, um, and you know, but there's also laws that might apply to how the employment situation is treated. Does the law supersede the contract, or does the contract supersede the law? Well, it, it really depends on the circumstance. Going back to the Microsoft situation, a lot of those employees actually did have contracts that said that they were temporary employees, and they were only hired and brought in by temporary agencies, and so the contract really was a temporary placement by an agency at Microsoft. But what the court said is that we're going to we're going to disregard whatever that relationship is called in that contract and look at some factors that we think are more telling as to whether someone is or is not an employee. For instance, they said we're going to look at the method by which the person was recruited, what type of training they get, how long they've worked on this particular assignment, whether or not they are in a position where Microsoft can give them other assignments, and and what the relationship is really between the agency and the employer. So they looked at those factors and said, you know, we believe that these people are simply common law employees because they've been here at Microsoft for as long as people who are regular employees. Microsoft gets to tell them what to do. Microsoft gets to give them additional assignments. Microsoft trains them. And and as they went down the factors, the court said, that's what you do with your regular folks. And so because that's what you do with your regular folks, we're going to consider these people to be regular employees as well. That's interesting. You know, I can remember years and years ago where employers, because they were vesting time frames before pensions were paid, they would right. they would hire folks and then get rid of them just before those vesting periods. It seems like this goes on and on. Uh, just the rules change, and uh, but the same result. Uh, oftentimes, employers are trying to uh, do some things that you're fighting for the employees to make sure the rights are there. Well, you know, you deal with a lot of uh, employment agreements, uh, Cheryl, and I'm sure that uh, there are a lot of fodder for uh, disputes or in those agreements, let's talk about one specific one that I know has always been an issue, and that's the non-compete clause. 
what's the latest on the enforceability of the non-compete clause in these agreements? Well, the enforceability of the non-compete clause in any employment agreement is governed by the state law. And let me just give you an example. In California, uh, the public policy is essentially one which does not recognize non-competition agreements except in very limited circumstances. One of those circumstances would be, for instance, if I own the business and I sold the business to you, you could put a non-compete agreement in the buy-sell agreement. But if I just worked for you and decided that I wanted to go work someplace else, as a general rule, California's law is going to say, no, you can't tell me that I can't go over there and work for the other guy. Mm-hmm. In a state like Washington, uh, we do recognize non-competition agreements, and they are written into employment agreements uh, on a fairly regular basis. Uh, you have to, of course, give somebody what we call consideration, and that generally means something of value in order to make that non-competition agreement be enforceable. And you also have to have the appropriate limitations on the non-competition agreement, such as the right geographic restrictions, the right amount of time, because if it's too long, if we say you can't work for somebody for 15 years, the courts are going to say that's too long a period of time. If we say it's two years, three years, and in fact some of our courts have said up to five years, are are okay in terms of the amount of time that you can restrict. And generally speaking, what the court really would prefer to see in Washington would be that you prohibit solicitation of customers and employees as opposed to restricting somebody's right to work. But all over the country, every state has a different interpretation of the non-competition laws, so much so that there are books and books and books written about non-competition agreements themselves. Sounds like you want to do some forum shopping before you get employed. (laughs) Well, you know, forum shopping is one of those things that... uh, Sometimes employers actually do forum shopping, and they will look to the place where it's most favorable to them. Right, I hear you. Where would the majority of the disputes lie with these non-competition agreements? Is it about, you know, not just the time frame, but you mentioned geographically. Is there other things that they would argue about? And and if there is a a dispute, uh, how many of these things end up in litigation? And at what point do they go there? I'll tell you probably the biggest thing that um, I find when I deal with non-competition agreements, which I do almost every day of my professional career, the big issue is if you've got someone who works in, in, in a specific industry and they leave your employment and they have a non-competition agreement and they go down the street and around the corner to work for somebody else in the same industry, what you find in that particular situation is that many employers are very concerned that because they are in the same industry and because both employers have serviced the same clients, what do you do about that circumstance? And that's really where the issues really pop up and are difficult to resolve. Did, did the contact that, they, that the employee um, had when they left employer A uh, follow them to employer B when employer B already had a different contact with uh, that particular business, is that a violation of the non-competition agreement? So that's a tricky one. And when you talk about what happens with respect to litigation, I am seeing more and more and more cases where non-competition agreements are the subject matter of the litigation. Why? Businesses are competing for 
a dollar that right now in this particular economy, I don't want to use the R word, but we are in that kind of economy. And so not you know, when we are when we are competing for a diminishing dollar, it is far more important for employers to ensure that they get all the dollars that they possibly can. Interesting. You know, one of the main purposes of uh, a lot of these class action cases against these employers is, uh, in addition to getting the employees some uh, some compensation, is to really change the company's behavior. And you mentioned the Microsoft case. Well, what, what do you in, uh, assess the uh, change in how Microsoft now employs people? What, what's been the effect of, of the, the lawsuit on Microsoft's, you know, employment practice? Well, I can, I can tell you that um, many employers who have been in the Microsoft kind of situation have very specifically limited the, the amount of time that anyone who is considered a temporary employee can actually work for them. They actually have these have forced breaks in service with the employer so that they are not in a situation where they've been there for a period of more than 10 to 11 months. And then they have a forced break of service of 90 to 120 days before that person can come back to work for them. Now, that if you, if you really like the job that you're in, that can be a, a somewhat difficult situation for the employee because they, they then have to go someplace else and, and, and use their skills and their trades in a different location before they are able to return to what they might consider to be a more remunerative job. So I, I would suggest that that is one of the things that has happened in terms of changing the behavior of employers who are bringing temporary employees on board. And Well, I, I know Microsoft's not the only large uh, internationally well-known company to have issues faced with employment litigation. So and, uh, since they're our neighbors here, I'm going to move on to another company that's been in the news, and uh, Walmart, and they've been sued on a variety of issues, and I believe uh, that might be the largest private civil rights suit uh, stemming out of allegations like this. And I just was curious what you could tell us about that situation. Well, you know, that's, that's one of those very, very difficult situations. And I first want to say that we have all seen that Walmart has responded to the allegations of both wage discrimination and sex discrimination by trying to, and I think perhaps effectively, uh, changing their public image. Uh, but that has not stopped uh, legislatures from around the country trying to put in what we call the Walmart rules, um, requiring people to pay benefits or even looking more cro- closely and scrutinizing more carefully uh, the, the way women and, and people of color are advanced within their organizations. But, you know, the Walmart situation is, is not a unique situation. And I think that we find, again, in times of economic difficulties in particular, uh, we, we have more litigation where there are allegations that someone has been the subject of some form of discrimination. It is a very difficult thing to control in an organization as large as Walmart what is happening from location to location to location, even though you might have centralized management. But I think that what Walmart has done is to truly respond to to the issue by, by essentially saying we are going to, with our centralized management, really scrutinize what every location is doing in order to ensure that we, we are not having these kinds of problems. They, I believe that they have undertaken, from what I know about the circumstance, and I don't represent Walmart, but I, I certainly read a lot, um, they have undertaken to do internal examination of promotion practices, 
of pay practices, of all kinds of practices internally. And I, I believe that they have truly vowed to correct whatever problems there, there may have been. And, and in many circumstances, those problems were isolated and, and were not systemic. Well, that's good, that's good to hear. I was going to say, if uh, we've talked about two large companies, and but these are issues that I would imagine drill down all the way to even uh, maybe very small companies or so-called mom-and-pop shops. Is, is that an accurate assumption? It, it is a very accurate assumption that uh, in, in this day and age, the, the year 2008, we are still seeing a large number of discrimination claims, whether they be based on wage, based on race, based on religion, national origin, and they are actually at every level of employer in the country. Now, as you probably are aware, the federal discrimination laws essentially cover people who have uh, 15 or more employees. And uh, as it relates to wage and hour laws, of course, those wage and hour laws require every employer to pay minimum wage unless there is a specific exemption. But what you find is that Every employer, I think, starts out wanting to do the right thing, but you also find that there is some generalized lack of understanding about what the law may be. And and even I have had clients who have said, well, I don't want to hire someone because they're not of my same faith. But if you're not a church, you can't make that determination um, as if you are covered by the discrimination laws based on religion. You have to base, make decisions based on qualifications. And I, I think that if we could educate all employers to understand that the primary focus should be based on qualifications and nothing more, then, um, you know, of course you want somebody to get along with the people in the workplace, but that's part of the qualification issue. Uh, you, you, you will, we will avoid, I think, a lot of, um, a lot of litigation if we could just get to that point. Well, how does an employer, uh, looking at all the issues you just raised, how does an employer establish safeguards against an invitation of litigation? It seems like uh, they're almost uh, going to be easy prey for those who want to litigate against them on these issues. How do they do that? You know, the first uh, thing that you want to do is always ensure that you have um, a, a clear set of rules and you have established appropriate expectations at the beginning. I like to tell every employer that unless they have one or two people as employees, they need to have a handbook. And when you have a handbook, um, essentially you, you, you put down the, the rules, you put down the law, you tell them what they can and cannot do, and then from there you, you move forward and say, okay, if you break the rules, we're going to not only enforce the rules that we've put down there, but we're going to help you to try not to do that again in the future. But if you continue to go down this road, you're not going to be surprised if we have to terminate you. You're not going to be surprised about a number of things simply because it is absolutely imperative that everyone understand the genesis and the basis of where we're headed. If you give people the rules up front, their expectations should be that they will have to comply with those rules. And then when something happens to them in the workplace that, that maybe results in them no, no longer being employed, then they can't claim surprise and they won't really have a basis upon which to make an allegation that it was based upon something other than their performance. And if, uh, if you are an employer who does get sued uh, by a permanent employee, a leased employee, borrowed, loaned, whatnot, what do we do? Well, I tell you what. 
the first thing you always want to do is call, call, call Cheryl. Your call Cheryl. <laughs> um, and and and, and the fa- I appreciate that because I, I do say to people out there, call your lawyer. It is it is very very difficult for somebody to essentially be in a position where they are trying to represent themselves. Um, it is it is very true that you generally have a quote fool for a client when you're representing yourself mm-hmm. because you you really don't know the ins and outs of how the uh, courts operate and what the laws are. I was telling someone not too long ago that on any given week I deal with probably 35 to 50 separate employment laws and that's not all of them that's just some of them. So I think it's imperative that every employer uh, have good counsel that they have someone they trust and the most important thing is before you think the litigation is coming if you have a question about whether you're doing the right thing call and ask for guidance it is better to ask for guidance now than to pay your lawyer later exactly especially if the guidance is uh, kind of gratis you know free in the, in the for the first phone call that that's that's a good thing Great. well let's take a quick break right now but when we come back we'll uh, continue this very interesting discussion with our special guest attorney Cheryl Willard from Seattle, Washington. This is Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE, including Ringler Radio? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and we're glad you joined us again today. We've been talking about employment litigation, and in today's workplace, the lines can be blurred about what's expected and required by the employer and the employee. And our expert guest is attorney Cheryl Willard from the law firm of Williams Kastner in Seattle, Washington. And uh, let's talk about a few more issues before we run out of time today. Uh, and uh, Let's do them in pretty quick order. And, uh, Tony, I'll start out, but how should uh, employee medical records be kept? Well, I'll tell you what. Employee medical records should always be kept in a separate place away from their personnel file. And the reason for that is that there are a number of laws which address the, the issue of who has a need to know and whether or not you've used impermissible information in making decisions. Uh, whether employers want to do it or not, sometimes they might look at a record and, and, and see that someone has a disability and have that creep into their thought process. So it is, it is always the best thing to do to keep all medical records separate and apart 
from any general personnel file. Discovery is at the heart of, of a lot of lawsuits in terms of getting the information that either side needs to evaluate it. And I'm curious how uh, e-discovery, if we can call it that, has changed the employment litigation. Well, certainly back in the days when uh, the only thing that you could discover was a hard piece of paper, uh, it, it was much less cumbersome for employers and much less expensive. Now people need to realize that every time a piece of litigation is filed against them, there is that moment in time when they are going to have to stop their normal policy of destroying everything on a routine basis that's on their computers, and they're going to have to actually go into the computers and look for data and provide information. And we all know that computers can contain a lot of information, sometimes things that we don't even realize are there. So it is really important that every employer, first of all, recognize that if you've got a routine in terms of getting rid of documentation, you should follow that and, and continue to follow that unless and until you get the what's called the discovery hold or the litigation hold, then you have to stop that policy and back up the, dot, the, the data related to whatever the subject matter of the litigation is. But bear in mind that it's a very expensive process. On the other hand, if you fail to do it, that's what's called spoliation of evidence. And spoliation of evidence can actually result in a judge making a determination that you lose before you even get to start defending yourself. Well, you know, and I've seen in many cases when spoliation of evidence is uh, entered into the picture, it just really aggravates a jury, that's for sure. That's correct. You know, the, uh, the other thing we've learned, I think, in this day and age is that as hard as you might try to erase something from your computer, some of these emails never go away. They'll find them somewhere, so you've got to be very careful about that. That's right. And one more thing, Cheryl, and that is that uh, it seems to me that today everyone tries to, is trying to be an opinion maker. These, these bloggers out there, they're blogs all over the place, and they're coming from individuals who want to have, and they all have something to say, but a lot of times they also are employed by an employer who has nothing to do with what they're doing, and sometimes these blogs can be controversial and uh, sometimes discriminatory in terms of their language. How does an employer uh, deal with that in terms of precautions so they don't get in trouble when these bloggers are out there doing their thing? Well, I think the first thing is that every employer needs to be in a situation where they are monitoring what is out there. Um, someone needs to be responsible for ensuring that people are not representing themselves as representing the opinion of the employer. And all of the people out here know how to go onto the Internet and check out the firm's name, the company's name, to see whether or not it has shown up on a blog. But in addition to that, it is if you're going to have a blog in the workplace, I think every employer needs to be in a situation where they think about whether it's one where everyone can comment on it, thereby exposing you to potential liability for things that you don't really know are going to be put there or by whom they will be put there, or whether it's going to be a controlled column, if you will, a discussion or opinion that's, that's out there with your permission and with your scrutiny. Blogging can be a very serious issue, and uh, while it is truly one of the areas in which people learn a lot of things about a lot of subject matters, it creates a lot of liability for employers who are not savvy enough or interested enough to at least monitor what is going on with their name. Well, well said. Well said, Cheryl. Well, I just want to say that this has been a very informative discussion. Uh, I think anyone in the audience that has anything to learn about the employment area, uh, this has been terrific. And uh, I want to thank you, Cheryl. Cheryl Willert from uh, Seattle, Washington. And uh, also my co-host, Tony Robinson, also from Seattle, uh, the Ringler office up there. 
Uh, it's been terrific. Cheryl, if someone wants to reach you, how would they do that? They can reach me through my uh, email address, which is swillert at williamskastner.com. Great. And Tony, how about yourself? Uh, you can always reach me uh, through the Ringler Associates website or call me on, in my office at 800-344-7452. And remember, all Ringler Associates can be reached on ringlerassociates.com. I uh, encourage you to go to the website. You'll learn an awful lot. And uh, things, you'll also learn something about employment law and how, uh, how structured settlements can help settle some of these employment cases by providing some tax-deferred annuities, if they're not, as long, you know, even though they're not tax-free because it's not an injuries uh, matter. Anyway, it's been a terrific discussion. Cheryl, again, thank you. This is Larry Cohen. Now go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network.